Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2021. Episode 338, Keepsake Games, Art, Education, and Equity. Presented by Jason Cox, Xing Yin Kor, and Jian Shim. Hey there, uh, my name is Dr. Jason Cox. This is Keepsake Games, Art, Education, and Equity. And I've got my, my, my perfect panelist here with me today. I'm very, very excited because I, I requested them and I thought, no, they'll never come. Uh, my my uh, my introduction here. I'm going to talk a little bit about sick games, uh, how I think of them, why I make them, and and I'm hoping my panelists do the same. Um, I'm a professor, assistant professor of art education, and the head of an art education program. So for me, the idea of of making games that leave behind an artifact uh, are pretty important because the artifact ends up having a lot of meaning. Because when you look at it, you think about the experience. Because when you talk to people about it, it lets you relive things. Uh, obviously, artifacts are, are very important for my field of study. Just something I'm, I'm pretty darn passionate about. Um, yeah, I'm going to pass it on to, uh, to Jian Shim. Hi, my name is Jian Shim. I'm a game designer. Uh, Shing and I have been collaborating for about the last year on Keepsake Games and Connected Path Games. Um, our first project together is Field Guide to Memory, which is probably the one that you've heard of if you're here uh, wanting to learn more about Keepsake Games. And you can find me on Twitter and Patreon and itch.io. Uh, Shing, how about you? Hi, I'm Shing. I'm an experienced designer who only recently started identifying as a game designer. It sounds so much like, you know, I recently started identifying as gay. But um, <laughs> no, I, I identified as gay long before I identified as a game designer. Um, but uh, a lot of my, my art practice and design practice is rooted in, in making in making things, in building things. So um, when I started making games, uh, the whole idea and concept of keepsake games was just immediately, I just immediately knew that that was the kind of thing that I wanted to make. And it was a really um, rational and, and, uh, and sort of elegant next step um, for the things that I wanted to make and build because uh, I really love building stories. And game design is just such like a perfect encapsulation of that. Fantastic. Um, I've got a couple of questions to start us off while, while the people that are out there in the, the magical world of the internets uh, think of some things. One of the ones I wanted to start with, which is, is part and parcel of the panel, is the, the way that keepsake games work in education. Um, when we're talking about uh, education normally we, we try to model some kind of growth or, or 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 expression of understanding and i know that the games that a pair of you work on at the very least feel educational uh, would you consider them to be educational if you were to change them how would you change them 
absolutely educational, but they're not intended to be games as lesson or games as pedagogy. They are games as emotional and aesthetic experience, and they are games as like individual player experience. I'd love to spend a minute kind of like talking about what a keepsake game is and why Shing and I coined the term. It was really Shing who coined the term keepsake game, um, if you want to talk about it a little bit. Um, well, it was really my ex-husband, but you know, <laughs> since he's an ex-husband, we're not going to give him too much credit. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, no, so Gian and I were working on Field Guide to Memory, and we were both working on our own other games at the same time that all played with these ideas. Gian was working on uh, Gideon Blythe at that time. I was also working on Amending, both of which are keepsake games as well. Um, but as we were collaborating, we were feeling so limited by the vocabulary that we currently had to describe these games that we were making. Um, and it's not that they didn't exist before. There are many games that have been done that would like fall under the umbrella of keepsake, keepsake games, but they were all being described with so many words. And when we yeah. were trying to talk about our games, we were like, it is a narrative, solo journaling game that produces a collectible artifact. And we're like, okay, too many words. Um, yeah. So like I was talking about, you know, my history with making, my history of building, Gian and I were texting in the car and we were workshopping um, Gian's term for connected path games, which is very much the show and tell aspect of a shared solo game experience. Um, and it was wonderful. And at the same time, I was, um, I was playing around with words that fit kind of my model of design and making. And we were using the word artifact uh, it was like collaborative artifact. Um, yeah. <laughs> and like, uh, I think the one I was joking about was, you know, one of those klutz kit, like a klutz kit with narrative. Um, but, and then I, you know, I was talking to my ex-husband at the same time while we we're doing this. And he was like, oh, you mean like a keepsake? And I'm like, thanks. Thanks, buddy. Cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, you got it in one. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, yeah. so, and, and, and while this is happening, like Gian and I are just like texting furiously to each other. So the way we've designed, uh, we coined the term keepsake game, um, and, and use it in conjunction with the term connected path games, because we really do feel like they're so incredibly interconnected is that a keepsake game is a game that produces an artifact of play as a central mechanism of the game narrative, uh, games narrative itself. Um, and as part of the primary design of the game. So a game that merely produces a bunch of artifacts, like if you do D &D, if you play D&D or most role-playing games, like tabletop role-playing games, you end up with character sheets. Those are artifacts, but they're not necessarily keepsake games because the main intention of the game has nothing to do with creating like specifically these physical exactly. artifacts. I actually have a great example of one of those games that like predates us coining the term, but is like absolutely a keepsake game. There is like a small live action role playing game, uh, I believe by Trolls Ken Peterson, or it was run by him for a group of friends, where the premise is that you are a group of fairy godmothers creating the like, like enchanted talisman for the child who you're gonna raise, right? And the whole game is you talking in character as these guardians knowing that they're going to face all these trials, each bead and charm that you add like symbolizes a stage of their life. And then you finish it and you have a bracelet that you wear as a player later to, to as a memento of your experience playing this game. Absolutely perfect example. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas well, a character also, sheet 
yeah, like a character sheet in D&D, like you can treasure it, but it is not intended as like a souvenir of the experience. It is supplemental to the game itself. Uh, But I I think this is actually also a really good time to actually get back to the initial question, which is how much keepsake games are actually... Um, like we may not intend them to be educational, at least the ones we make, but they're like, in, they are completely tied up with our background in teaching. Yeah. So like, in a sense, it's kind of like a little, a little loop because um, I don't think that if we were teachers, <laughs> we would necessarily have ended up here. Do you want to talk about your background in, um, in, in, sorry, trackers? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's funny because at this point, I just say I'm a game designer. I came to game design through outdoor education and teaching wilderness survival skills and land stewardship to children, mostly adult classes, but mostly children. Um, And I was hired because I'm a giant nerd. And there was, in fact, a LARPing department. There was a uh, each theme of this education company was called a guild and the artisans guild, which is coincidental given that artisan has to do with handcraft and story in craft, um, was all the live action role playing and, and really leaning into the make believe behind learning these skills. And the skills we taught were how to build a fire safely in California, not a small thing, how to carve with a knife, archery, uh, axe throwing, herbalism and plant identification, animal track and sign, uh, stealth. Um, it was very cool. And none of it could be taught as like, now we are going to learn a lesson. It all had to be a game. It all had to be a story. And it, you know, dovetailed really tidily with, uh, you know, kind of, flirtation on the company's part with the idea of maybe doing adult live action role playing games that taught these same skills, Um, which is how I went to Big Bad Con on the company's behalf. I actually didn't start game design doing my own work. I made games that were on the behalf of this other entity, which I think was good because it meant that I was looking more at the teaching aspect at like, how do I integrate these skills in a way that will appeal to very specific demographics like you know, um, adult gamers who go to indoor, sometimes windowless hotel conventions are very different than kids who are there to run around in the woods, right? But like, how do I make those same skills and those same principles of land stewardship just as appealing and exciting? And the first game I designed, a bunch of adults were in the lobby of uh, the Marriott and Walnut Creek smearing charcoal paste onto their face. (laughs) as like an invisibility spell. Like there are ways to make things tactile and um, lean into the sensory material uh, experience of, of make-believe games, which is essentially what all of us are interested in at this convention. Um, and that I think is really the first step on this path that led Shing and I to like meeting each other and realizing we had very similar interests. Um, but the teaching, you know, I love teaching. And because teaching is how I learned those skills and then also learned game design, it's really embedded into the way that I write and it's basically inextricable, you know. Um, But I don't write games to teach lessons. I write games. Oh, (laughs) sorry. Uh, Don't be back. That's the rule of of an online meeting is if there's a cat, you have to say there's a cat. Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah, so I think that like that outdoor education background, um, maybe even more than like a traditional indoor classroom background, um, has given me a lot of 
really interesting perspectives and tools to bring to game design, including like uh, thinking adaptively out of the box, right? Because, um, you know, and we can talk about this with Field Guide to Memory and how that then leads into education um, or keeps the games as an education tool. We had to adapt to the pandemic conditions when we designed this game, which are not the norm for a lot of the game design I'd done before. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit, actually? Yeah, I mean, adapting to pandemic con- like conditions is essentially my the start of my game design career. Um, because <laughs> I prior to this, I built a large large scale installation art, and I did experience design, which is kind of building very large rooms that people walked into and experienced very much like theater without actors. Uh, my background's in theater. I'm a scenic designer. I used to teach like stagecraft and things like that. So that's what my background in teaching is in. It's a very like practical things <laughs> like how do you glue wood together um but so in the pandemic uh the pandemic devastated the art scene it devastated theater it devastated um large-scale installation art like i couldn't have a crew um so what i was already trying to do at that point was to bring these large-scale experiences that i was building into smaller and smaller spaces. And I I already scaled it down to essentially something I could build and perform myself. Um, and now I begun to experiment with the idea of something that an audience member slash player slash participant, I still think of these as three um, interconnected roles, uh, the recipient, um, <laughs> something that they could have and still have like a fairly immersive experience while isolated in their own home. Um, And that was how I started developing Amending, which is my embroidery keepsake game. But it was also very much how we ended up with Field Guide Um, because, and, and it also set us down the path of like talking more about keepsake and connected path games because so much of the experience we wanted was an experience that was largely played in isolation. Um, and it was very intentional in the first half of our, of of the, the field guide experience is you feel very alone. Like you are getting letters from a fairly hostile source. You don't really know what to do. You don't have a lot of direction. All you have are a lot of feelings and memories. Um, and as you proceed through the game, more and more people reach out to you. You gain a community. And this community is reflected both in the game, uh, the game's narrative itself. But if you choose to um, interact with people on Twitter during this time, your community who is playing the game grows with you as well. So by the end of the game, you have a community of not just like, um, of not just, you know, fictional characters that we invented, they're all part of the game. Um, but you're also kind of talking to other people, like in character. Um, one of our final uh, segments of the game is, uh, and this was one of Gion's like just amazing pieces of writing. It's you're asked to, you know, figure out who goes on you on this field, um, on this field expedition. And a delightful thing we saw with our players is that they would put each other on these expeditions. Like they would put some characters from uh from the game in their expedition but they would also just you know put other people that they'd been getting to know just over the month of of play and that was just was just really wonderful seeing uh, a kind of community 
spring up around around this game. It was really cool. And it was, you know, it was an experiment. We did it through a social media hashtag, right? Like mm-hmm. you'll get to memory is a hashtag on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. And that was the way that players could, you know, retain their solitary experience that they wanted. There was a, um, uh, I think one of the hosts of um, Shut Up and Sit, Shut Up and Sit Down um, said that he did his as like a bullet journal and never shared it and like didn't really talk to people about it. But he looked through the hashtag, right? And I think that uh-huh. is an experience that a lot of players said is they kept looking through the hashtag to see what other people were doing. And that's the connected path aspect. That's the show and tell. Because if you make something, a lot of my design is anchored in in my understanding of child, not just child development, but the way that like people retain the ways that they understand the world that they learn in their childhood. Like in adulthood, we are basically still interacting with and engaging with the world, our non-human community and our human communities all in very similar ways as we did with children. And show and tell is a huge deal for kids. They bring in something special. They want to tell its story. And they want their friends to listen and ask questions so that they can kind of recreate that experience for everybody. But it's still their story. And so to be able to do that on an individual level, but give everyone a window into everybody else's story as well. That was like, you know, we weren't sure. We were like, we've never done this before. As far as I know, it's never been done before in this specific way. Let's give it a shot. And it works extremely well. It, it's a really wonderful way for people to basically opt into how much they want to interact. And some people that, that Shing was saying, like, you know, in the last kind of scene of the game, the last prompt, um, started integrating people they'd never met before. Like literally did not know before the start of this game, maybe didn't even like talk to super regularly, but they liked their story and they would talk about each other's stories. And that's, you know, that's such a childlike fundamental instinct. It's the, can I play with you or come play with me? Yeah. Right. It was wonderful. Absolutely, Andy. It's also the kind of thing that sort of gets lost a little bit over time. I mean, in education that in the very like quantitative um, kind of version of test taking where with games like Field Guide, it's very natural. It's like, no, of course you can look at someone else's thing. Like it doesn't, it doesn't hurt your own creativity. Like you can steal an, I- an idea or two. It truly doesn't matter. You're still making your own things. Totally. Um, I'm super not as well-known a designer as you guys, obviously, uh, because I'm, I'm primarily an academic. The only, student, uh, the only people who play most of my games are my students. Um, but, but it is what I do. And I, I do want to say, first of all, thank you for coming up with the term keepsake games because it was a term... I was struggling with because I would lay out all those words that you were talking about before, and I'm mean, like, "This is this is awkward." There's too many words. There's so many so words. Many words. Uh, it's. <laughs> I mean, as an academic, you know, it gets me the word count I need. But, uh, <laughs> well, um, you say that we're still at the point where you can say keepsake games, and you still have to define it. So that that's you know a you solid 150 hey, words look, in there. T- Our gift to you. I'll tell you, I am 100% going to use that term, and then I'm going to make sure that you guys get the credit for it. That's Core Shim 21 in the <laughs> APA citation. Um, but like, but when I started doing anything like this, uh, the, the, you know, there was my classroom stuff, and then for my dissertation, I had people reflecting on role-played interactions artistically because they were all people who had been taught to be art educators, and then they would present it at the beginning of the next session. 
enjoyed it as a chance for uh, attention to be focused on them because so much of our, our LARP part of it, if, if you want to hear about my dissertation, that's a different thing, uh, was was uh, community-based and collaborative. And they're like, just for a little bit, it's nice for it to be about me. Um, and a lot of the games that I've made have had uh, uh, physical artifacts as part of them. Then I played one of the chancellors in New World Magiscola, if you've ever heard of that. It's fairly large LARP kind of uh, magical wizard college. Um, and one of the things I discovered in that... Yeah, step on my keyboard, you little wretched creature. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I discovered was that everybody put a lot of thought into everything that was on their person, especially magic wands in that game. Uh, and they had like these long involved stories and they were just hoping someone would ask them about their wands. So I started doing that and it was interesting. And then I ran like an online museum for it. Um, so, and then more recently I've been doing an adaptation of thousand year old vampire, Ooh. which is love that game. It's just shy of being a keep, keepsake game already. <laughs> it's a turtling <laughs> game. Uh, but since I'm an art person, you know, I added an art element where they start making uh, some kind of artistic reflection as their character goes through time. Um, and because I make it for students, uh, I made it with the idea of um, choice-based art. You can only use any given media twice. So if you Ooh. make a marker picture once, Ooh. you don't get to do, you only get one more and then you've used them all, uh, which in some ways is more effective than taking away memories. Yeah, um, I like that. That's cool, yeah. <laughs> so, That's a um, great twist on the game. Hey. Uh, so, like, for me, the the um, keepsake games are useful in terms of, of getting people to experiment because the prompt gives them an alibi to try something new. Um, and rules mean that they, they have to try something new. Um, challenge tends to be with that kind of thing uh, as as as... John was say, saying, uh, I think the the quantitative versus qualitative thing, and things are so variable, it's difficult to write a rubric. If I can't present a rubric, it's difficult for people who are not art teachers to understand what the heck I'm doing. Um, the honestly, the easiest way around that is for me to show the work that is produced, because I actually have found that my students. Um, Prove by leaps and bounds by by having these game restrictions in place over the construction, um, or at least that's what I've been finding so far. Relatively small uh, sample size. Um, fantastic. Uh, I think there's there's another thing I want to point out. It, it's I wrote it as two questions, but it really comes down to one: is uh, a question of accessibility. Um, so the way I wrote it was, how can a game overcome lack of self-confidence in art making? Also, how can keepsake games be kept affordable for players? Um, so I know... Well, we can Nick, definitely answer um, that first one. We can yeah. answer both of them. But the <laughs> first one was yeah. something we've definitely like a lot of thought into. Um, God, I think we actually like very specifically had a conversation about this. Yeah, it's yeah. And notes. you had a... And um, you had a great tool for it, which I love yes. and have definitely <laughs> quoted to other people because it's so good. Um, um, so for background, it was specifically uh, this little, uh, the section that Gian wrote about going out to a nearby park and drawing a map 
um, that reflected that park and kind of marking spots on it. So it's amazing because we were introducing people to map making for the first time, getting them outside and a whole lot of other things like that, reflecting on, you know, their own spaces. Um, and what was it specifically that you asked? It's how can we... How can um, we get people to overcome their self-consciousness over whether or not they're good at drawing? Because that's something that, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Linda Berry, but she's an American cartoonist who did this amazing comic amazing. about this exact thing. She's just amazing. Um, but it's so about how like, as children, you know, speaking of someone who like understands the world through like a very childlike lens, like as children, we draw very unselfconsciously, but at some point we start worrying about whether it's good. And that's absolutely an external judgment that gets internalized at some point very young. And we carry it around for our whole life un unless we decide to go into the arts in which we spend the rest of our lives trying to train it out of ourselves, yeah. right? And like, how do you, do you help someone when you're not in the room with them? You're not their art teacher, right? You're not like there next to them able to, to kind of give them like a little pep talk. Um, how do you encourage them to just sort of get over the hump? And Shing was like, Oh, I mean, because Shing is a visual artist, right? Like this is <laughs> this their is, literal like, job. <laughs> it was extremely concise. Uh, I believe I just so said, um, provide an example, make it bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and I don't mean bad as a, as a form of visual communication, but bad, a bad drawing. Like, you know, the drawing we put in field guide was objectively sort of like a bad drawing but it communicated what it needed to visually. And exactly. I think that's something that uh, a lot of game designers uh, trip themselves up on a lot, especially in, in the context of encouraging you know, other people to play along. It's because we want our work to look good. Like we want to show off that we are good artists. Like, of course we do, but um, that is not always the way to get people like encouraged and involved in making their own art. Um, yeah. Oftentimes, like you know, do the bare do the bare minimum needed to communicate your ideas, but don't worry too much about quality. And sometimes yeah. you might actually want to dial down your own quality. <laughs> we talked about like, this a lot at training at my old job. Like, if you tell a kid, like, "Oh, your your the arrow you just made is very good," it doesn't actually give them the no. information they need to know what they did well. You might say, "Wow, the fletching is so even," or like, "You mm -hmm. made the shaft so straight." Like something that is very specific is helpful for them because then they know and can go through their own process like kind of backtrack like what they did so that they can do it again but to just say something is good it doesn't actually it doesn't give someone yeah, yeah yeah it's like well, validation like without substance. color you know i really right. like the specific way you drew these trees because they look like little stacked up triangles like yeah even something more expressive like i love how vibrant this is i yes. love how many colors you use like mm -hmm. and one of the things i had to tell staff is you have to get over your own perfectionism so that you yeah. don't instill it in children because children yeah. have it already and they're anxious about it. And the whole point is to have fun and learn, right? And to learn with each other, um, whether or not it's perfect. Like that's a, that's a loser's game. Like you're never going to win that bet. So you might as well just have fun with the process. And that's like what a quote unquote bad drawing I think communicates mm -hmm. is it's not about the outcome. It's about the whole process and the drawing is just one part of that. 
I actually have, after we had that conversation, Shing, I've been doing the same thing with handwriting. Because when I write just for myself, it gets, like, very, like, arcane and cramped. But, like, for whatever reason, that's, like, aesthetically appealing to a lot of people. But when I do samples for, like, Kickstarter visuals or, like, my Mm -hmm. own page, I make it – I make myself write bigger than I am inclined to normally write because then it looks a little clumsier. Yeah. Yeah. And it's clearer, too. great. Yeah. yeah, I I'm typewriting um, and my entire next game because it's like a typewriter. We understand like what's going on here. Like <laughs> I have beautiful handwriting, but you know what? I'm gonna typewrite it. Yeah, yeah. And as for the, like the affordability aspect of it, I think like that is equally applicable to materials too. Like I am definitely a collector. I I have like my little wood rat nest of materials and pretty paper and all of that stuff. But um, when I was doing the the photographs for the promotional material for Gideon Blythe, I made myself mostly just use office supplies, like standard mm-hmm. office supplies that people would have in a filing cabinet, just using them creatively because I wanted people to understand, like, you can do this in a composition notebook, right? Like the, the things that you use to make it are part of your expression, but you can make that expression out of anything. It doesn't, you don't have to go out and buy something. And that was actually a big part of why I designed one of the books in The Shape of Shadows to be around a planner. And I explicitly said many times, you can use an old planner. In fact, I encourage you to use an expired planner because it's not supposed to be perfect. The whole point of the game is how messy and untidy uh, these people are. And that's reflected in the work that you make. Um, I think that self-consciousness and like perfectionism absolutely bleeds over into our material objects right like Mm -hmm. the number of times I have a notebook and I'm like it's so special I don't want to write in it and it's like but the whole purpose is to be written in Mm -hmm. you know that's why I have it in my house um and so you know encouraging people to be creative without getting really precious about stuff is like a thing that I'm constantly thinking about when I make keepsake games or or connected path games broadly speaking Uh... some of this uh, I'll be fast. <laughs> it goes back to the to the education thing because we're basically talking about emphasizing the process over the product. Mm-hmm. It, uh, so by by de-emphasizing your own product, you de-emphasize the idea of product with them. Um, and by using accessible materials in your examples, you encourage that as well. Um, you know, in art, we would use uh, student examples as much as possible. Um, yeah, it's, uh, no, I mean, it like, so financial accessibility is actually like, it's a lot more challenging for me because, um, like with field guide, it was great. All you really needed was a book, but with games like amending, I mean, I think my intention for amending was less financial accessibility and more, uh, helping crafters get through their stash. Um, because anyone that has a hobby just ends up with so much stuff. Um, so if anything, I think I'm leaning more towards, uh, compelling people to use the, all their little, their little raccoon treasure hoards that they may (laughs) already have gathered over time. Um, but another, a thing that I, that I think about a lot in terms of financial accessibility is, I mean, games are expensive and, and it's difficult for me to price like a physical copy of a keepsake game, like amending at anything like lower than $50. I mean, that is the cost of making goods. Um, and, you know, I, I produce everything locally, like everything is hand screen printed and whatnot. 
Um, but I also released the game in its entirety for free. And the difference there is that um, I'm a person who's known for making objects. I'm a person who sells objects. Um, and for me, at this kind of early point in my career, it made sense for me to charge for the beautiful, well thought out objects that I that I produced and designed and made. Uh, while as a game designer, I was perfectly willing to give that content away for free. So if you choose to play Amending, for instance, for free, you would have to figure out your own way to kind of transfer the map, make the map. Like I produced, I, you know, I produce high res files. But so much of what I enjoy about keepsake games is the process of figuring out how to produce the objects you need to play the game. Um, and my next game is so much more complex, uh, and I'm going to release that game for free as well. But you know, you it's either you can pay me to produce these beautiful objects for you that you will then use to make more beautiful objects, or you could start from scratch. So in a sense, it's very similar to uh, mobile free-to-play games, where <laughs> you, do you have time or do you have money? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you can put either one in. Right. Right. Like one of those one of those dials has to go up, I think. Yeah. Um for the exchange to be balanced. And I remember with Field Guide it was really important to us that like the core what we called the core game was yeah. affordably priced. It was $15 for the entire live experience that was like mm -hmm. every email prompt and you know, if you get those email prompts if you're one of the players who signed up for the live game, you have those in your archive forever. You have yeah, the game yours. forever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the PDF was priced higher because it is a finished text. It is a finished text that we both worked on and be that our layout editor worked on and our creative team worked on. And so like the price is reflecting their talents as well, which is why, you know, like the PDF is on my, on, uh, we're using my itch.io for now. Eventually at some point, you know, we'll probably have like a, a mixed storefront for our work. Um, but it's there for $30 because that is what that work is worth. And if that is inaccessible to anybody, I've said this many times and I'll say it over and over because I want to, like anyone can email me. My email is in my bio on Twitter. It's everywhere on social media. Like it's, I think it's even on the itch.io page. Anyone can email me and just be like, hey, like I'm a student or, um, you know, whatever. I can't pay $30 and I'll be like, great, you know, here you go, right? Like we can always work something out individually because it should never be a barrier to entry and I want that price that people see on that page to reflect all of the talent and work and time that went into it that wasn't just me and Shing it was Ruby Lavin it was Alyssa Wong Marco Shiro Don Wan Song oh my god I, there's so many people Amal um, and Jessica Amal and, and Jessica Amal yeah. and Jessica yeah. Lashnall but uh yeah yeah and I kept we also have like a really we have a really lax, like, you know, attitude towards people sharing where yeah. it's like, look, if you have the PDF yeah, and you want to send it to a friend, like, huh? yeah, yeah. Never. And, you know, if okay. we, you know, we've talked about coming out with a print edition of Field Guide, which I would like mm -hmm. to do at some point because that tactile yeah. nature, I think, would be wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be that much more than $30 because, again, it's the price of the text. The extra cost on it will be the cost of manufacturing, shipping and packaging time and like the handling time. fair. Right? Is yeah. very high these days. It is. It is very high these days. There, you know, there might be a reason we're waiting mm -hmm. <laughs> a little bit, but um, yeah, like I think that everyone has their own system of valuing 
their work and the you know one of the tricky things about game design or writing or visual art is everyone's metric is going to be different and the way that I price my work now was not the way I priced my work two years ago when it was not something that I did for a living and also not something that I poured as much of myself into to be to be honest um and I think that like financial accessibility for the core text that being said it's kind of in fact like with academic papers like I don't have a JSTOR account but I know I can email any professor and be like hey like (laughs) I'm writing something about the migratory patterns of this particular local songbird is it okay if I read your paper and they are thrilled to eat they're like you want to read my dissertation absolutely here you go you know like I've never ever had anyone say no um yeah so I think that like that accessibility question um I think that in this very instant gratification like commerce centered way we have of of like engaging with art lately um it'll be back uh it I think sometimes people forget that you can reach out to creators individually and to artists individually and just ask you know um and that we're you know people at the other end of a screen and we're we're happy to talk to you i did that at one of my point out that it is actually uh you can actually get field guide for i think about two dollars if you support either gian or i or patreon because we sent it to all our patreon subscribers as well yeah, yeah, it's in like uh, my my Patreon. I I nicknamed it the Dirk Goblin Community Center, and it's stuck. So there's a a community center library, which is just a Dropbox yeah. folder with like everything, everything. So, yeah, we make it. Yeah. yeah, we make our work pretty pretty, pretty easy. easy. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, we like sharing. We like show and tell. Yeah. you know. So. Mm-hmm. In terms of like reaching out, normally I don't actually have a problem with it. It just even didn't occur to me to personally reach out. I, I was, I was uh, telling Xing uh, when when we first logged on, it like it didn't occur to me to actually send an email to to you two. It's fine. Uh, we so, just come off as so cool uh, and so intimidating <laughs> online. So I amazing. understand. Absolutely. Wanted to mention just just offhand a, a couple things. One, and I'll put the link later on so that they can share it. Uh, school when we when we went to the pandemic, they wanted everyone to do like a five minute share information for the public to show how cool the professors were. And I did a Linda Berry Linda Berry drawing exercise. So Aww. it's like a, a three minute video on how to draw a cartoon of yourself. That. That's wonderful. Your exercise. That's perfect. Um, <laughs> Also, I was going to mention just offhand, uh, Banana Chan, just uh, recently she she had shared she's working on a game called Exquisite Crime, which appears to be like... Oh, it's launched. Yeah, it's launched already, yeah. Yeah, Which is an exquisite corpse drawing game. Yeah, it's incredible. Then uh, she had had also done a a coloring book, like murder mystery thing. uh, I think that's coming out. That's that's not Uh, ready yet. Yeah. that's Daniel's oh, no, Academy. That. Yeah, yeah, it's coming out though. But I don't think she calls those keepsake games, but to me, they seem like they fit the description that I might use for them. Uh, even though you know, like the coloring thing, the drawing is there, but you have to color and assemble. Um, the exquisite corpse is near as I can tell, uh, operating within a framework, but still expecting people to draw. So there's still an artifact at the end, but it's not necessarily 
they're they're designed to function a little bit differently because both of them are engaging with, uh, a community kind of engaging with it um several people drawing possibly several people coloring um rather than a, a solo artifact it, i think they still fit I mean, people kind can of... use whatever words they want <laughs> yeah it's like... <laughs> all words are are made up we're not yeah. cops. you can use no whatever words word you real. want yeah. like... Uh, words aren't even real. What even are words? Stick to what the are words. <laughs> um, so I don't know if our moderators have questions for us. There are some, yeah. Oh, fantastic! Let's let's take them. So a message from Chad. Thank you for sharing your insights with us. As a music music educator and game designer, I'd love to hear if you know about any games that serve as a form of creation slash keepsake creation for the performing slash non visual arts. Ooh. I do not personally know of any, um, partially oh. because I have auditory processing issues and I'm also tone deaf. So uh, I don't, I don't know. Gian, do you know of any? Because this, I would, I would be so into this. This sounds incredible. I do. I also have auditory processing issues and I have memory, uh, a working memory <laughs> issues, but I will find, I was literally in one of my group chats with a bunch of friends who are also interested in, in different kinds of game design, just talking about sound-based, music-based, um, like even audio drama-based games that like create something. So I will go back through my chat log and see if I can find it. And if not, I'll find things that are adjacent to it because I know that there are games that use sound or, or lack of sound in really interesting ways. They might not be keepsake games, but they might get your like gears turning. Like Alice is Missing yeah. uh, just won the Indiecade for um, tabletop games for this year designer is a very good friend of mine and it's a game that uses silence and a soundtrack in a really powerful way um also one of the best role-playing games i've played it's very good um and uh there are also live action role-playing games like i think sarabond is a, a pretty well-known one within like the the academic lark circles about um creating like like a creating like an orchestra together or something like that i'll have to look it up i'm sure i'm getting it wrong but yeah there are a lot of games that involve music but not quite with that keepsake aspect that you're talking about. And I think that there are like little stirrings of it. So I'm going to, I'm going to look now because yeah. now I'm, I'm we are, interested. Yeah. We're very <laughs> excited yeah. and interested for that, for that branch. Yeah. It, it yeah. is extremely compelling. First totally. game I would probably point you to is not technically music, but it hits the uh, right notes would be sign by Thorny games. Uh, because oh, there's oh. a, uh, in that game, there's an uh, emergent sign language, um, so that would be kinesthetic, and it does not actually. Okay, yeah. Um, so that performance. Uh, no, that it, it, what you end up with at the end is a language that is spoken only by the people who played the game. Um, uh, Which is very has, similar to dialect uh, or other games, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Yeah, well, I mean, it is. That's yeah, by design. Uh, so, so uh, that's probably the first place I'd go. The the concept speaking um the most i see it is in in what we sometimes call synesthesia even though that's technically a condition like the the way we engage with um vasily kandinsky uh in terms of how sound gets turned into art or or uh, jackson pollock in terms of um again kinesthetic art um one thing that I would suggest you do is look into uh, an academic whose name is Mary Flanagan. You've never oh, yeah. read her. Yep. She uh, wrote she talks, Critical Play. 
did. Mm -hmm. uh, she talks a whole lot about the games that Surrealists and the Fluxus movement played. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And also leads a couple of games. Uh, and a lot of her stuff is, again, about community play. And, and mm -hmm. it uses multiple senses. Uh, so there was yeah. one... Did um massive multiplayer uh, game where they were assembling basically a big bowl of noodles. And you had to explore the city. But, but in terms of finding ways of engaging with things that are not, strictly speaking, visual... I think she is a, a good starting point. Yeah, I agree. Actually, like, yeah, uh, and also just a surrealist art movement in general. And like you said, the Fluxus movement. It's like everything we're doing, they probably did already. Yeah, yeah. It's very fertile ground for exploration <laughs> yeah. if you're looking into, like, sensory exploratory mm -hmm. design. Um, it's very cool. If you're looking to, if you're looking to, to find some more inspiration, uh, Italian futurist music. Yes. Um, is, <laughs> yeah. It can be intense, but <laughs> maybe it is... also um, Brian Eno has done. These, oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. These yeah. like installation art, music, visual type situations. Um, I haven't dug too deeply into them, but yeah, I think that's a more recent like pile of weird music inspiration there. Yeah, totally. Do you want another question? Sure. Yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> For keepsake games, how realistic is it to design a multiplayer collaborative one, something that would live in a similar realm to letterboxing or geocaching so those player connections happen in the meat space? So okay. let, let, me just, let me just make sure I'm understanding this right. So basically, can you make a keepsake game that is a in-person group play experience? Is that, is that the question? That's how I interpreted it. Okay. Um, I'm actually working on a couple right now uh, using um, like a combination of existing systems, like roughly powered by the apocalypse, but also um, a system I'm calling the collective dream, which involves a lot of like collaborative drawing and map making as part of the like role playing. Um, but it's very early dev. So I even hesitate to like cite it. Uh, but at in about a year and a half, I'll have something solid. I think there's also um, a lot of lyric games that are scattered all over itch.io, right? Um, mm. And many of them involve craft aspects, um, whether or not their creators would term them keepsake games or whether they like kind of like match what Shing and I were talking about. I don't know, but like they are, many of them are group games um, and are intended for two or more players and involve making something together. I know that there are some games that involve like making a meal together. There are some games that involve like drawing each other's portraits, I think. Um, there are some that are letter writing games back and forth, which which I, I think of as a keepsake game because you keep yeah. those mementos, right? Like, um, and there's been an explosion of those games in the last couple of years. So I would say uh, the Golden Cobras are a really great place to look for that for the last year, which was the pandemic year when everyone had to think about doing it remotely all of those games are free and there's a, a huge archive of them uh for free online so i would i would check those out um, as a starting and point actually um i mean i've done a couple of those i ran a hundred person mail larp called space no that's space right. that's still oh, kind yeah. of freeform running um and i think that qualifies as a keepsake game and oh, romancing really? jan is another large kind of victorian era letter writing game with a shared universe um, and that that is active right now. Um, it's also nominated for an Indicate Award. 
but you know, even prior to this, like immersive theater has been doing this like for a long oh, time. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, like yeah, a lot yeah. of work of the Latitude Society, um, a lot of other other immersive theater groups and sort of immersive puzzle experience groups. Uh, are yeah. very much about uh, creating puzzles that exist in real life, creating like characters and narratives that all overlap with each other, um, that do interact with an audience in a method that we would very much, I think, consider a game. Was it the Explorers Guild that did the stamp passports or was that the yes. Latitude Society? Yeah, it, it, the it was the, yeah. I get that mixed up. I think it was Explorers Guild, which sort of came out of the Latitude Society. Right, right, there right. There were yeah. several different, but yes, it was the Explorers Guild that did the stamp passports. Yeah, basically um, it was like, it's it's like a kind of like augmented reality sort of yeah. thing. Like yeah. members um, can send away for a passport and then you are told to go to a specific location. Sometimes you're told what you're going to do, sometimes you're not. Um, the person who organizes that event has a custom stamp that they make and they put it in your passport as a way to signify that you did this event. So like I did one of them without the passport that was like a, a labyrinth of lights where it was like on North Beach. Someone just set up this huge labyrinth with just candles in the sand. Um, and there are some that are like doing geocaching, some that are scavenger hunts. Um, and those are absolutely groups because a lot of people go in groups like they form social yeah. groups around it. Um, and whether it's in character or not, I, I'm not sure if, if like that's specifically what you're looking for. But for group social play that involves like creating keepsakes together, that def definitely qualifies, I would say. Yeah, the experience design community has been has been on this beat for a good long while. Yeah. And I think um, that in recent years, my last 10 years, there's just been so much more cross pollination between like game, video gamey people tabletop RPG people and experienced design people. And it is leading us to so, to exactly what you're talking about. Like there's just so much fertile ground um, for these mashups of different experienced design forms. So I think cool. you might, you, there's a couple other things you might look into. One is a, a project that was run for about a year called World Without Oil, um, which was a, it was an online thing where they, postulated a timeline where then all of a sudden there's no oil and people made artifacts that documented the breakdown of society that they contributed for free and were all uploaded to the website. Um, so that's one way that can be done. I also say museums, um, the more cutting edge museums are very interested in being sites of discussion. And the problem is that people are not there for the same times or same purposes. So they found different ways of doing that. Uh, sometimes that's as simple as having post-its where people can interact with art. Sometimes it's in terms of they have little things that have like arts and other symbols that you can put on hooks underneath the art. Oh. Sometimes yeah. it's... Uh, also, the, the children's I, sections of museums have yeah. been like on this for a good long while. I actually have a local example of this. The Oakland Museum of California has been doing this for about, like as long as I've lived here, so about 13 years, um, because they realized that they're not getting uh, foot traffic from tourism the way like the MoMA in San Francisco is. They're ma mainly talking to their own community. And so they, you know, kind of took that principle from children's museums or the children's sections in museums of like, what do you think of this art? Like, this is what this symbolizes, this is what a symbol is. And they applied it to every wing of the museum. And that included um, exhibits on social issues. So they had an, an amazing exhibit on the Black Panthers a few years ago um, because. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Black Panthers originated in Oakland, and the discussions that were done 
basically asynchronously on those big boards, right? Because you could take an index card and write what you wanted. And then you kind of put it on the timeline of like when your opinion was formed about that. And like, it was just really, really cool to see so many people coming in and like sharing their thoughts and one and kind of wondering about them. Like, do they come back to see if someone responded? Because you could respond to people too. Um, yeah, so that's in a museum where if you're in the Bay Area, like I cannot recommend the Oakland Museum in California enough. Um, and they've been doing that for, for a while. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing that up, Jason, because I wouldn't have connected it, but that's absolutely true. Yeah. You can, uh, you can read about a lot of these things. It's a little out of date now, but there's an author named Nina Simon who wrote a book called the interactive museum, uh, that talks mm -hmm. about some of the ideas when they were first coming to the fore. Uh, and there's a lot of really interesting things for, for keepsake approaches in that. I actually wanted to talk about cooking also, and this is more of a theoretical thing. Um, I was in the Visionary Art Museum and they had had in the museum uh, this woman's art and she had done a, a lot of beautiful fibers work, but then they also had this stack of recipe cards. It was her recipe for a specific kind of dessert bread that she made in Poland as a child, um, but she had had to flee from, from uh, persecution for being Jewish. Um, so it was a record of the uh, of the experience of learning how to make it, of learning, et cetera, et cetera. And then there was the recipe card. And I, I was explaining to my sister-in-law why I loved it so much, why it was my favorite work of art. It's like, you take this card and don't just have the experience of eating this food. You have the sound of the chopping, the feeling of the kneading. Mm. And, the the smell of the cinnamon in the air like this whole communication of experience which reaches back through time and over space and across distance away yeah. uh and uh i tried to do it with my classes too it's it's challenging if you want everyone to bring in a recipe because they don't necessarily have the the same esoteric love as i do but also I ran into a thing where if people are not confident in their cooking, they're not mm. confident in sharing a recipe. Um, but just the, the idea of cooking as a keepsake. Um, yeah. Is, is, it's not, I, it's such a visceral and intimate experience. It is. Cause eating is, you know, it's, it's not a keepsake, but if you reverse ephemeral. engineer it, yeah. it, it is ephemeral, but if you're looking at experience design, the experience design part yeah. of that question, this was actually one of the first, games that I read that wasn't one that I played around a table and it was it's a free game you can find it online by Sharong Beeswas it's part of the 200 word RPG archive and it's called Feast and mm. it I think you have to have exactly five players for each of the five tastes you bring in like a platter of like something sweet something salty something sour something bitter um and like cut it up enough that everyone can just have a taste and all of you are I might get the premise a little wrong, but you're basically these parasitic entities taking over a single person. And when you eat something, that is a memory or an experience they have that you're consuming. And after you're done eating it, they no longer have it. It's just yours. It's like this really understated, powerful game about, um, you know, the consumption of identity and experience under colonialism. It's not explicit about it, but, you know, like, Shrong and I are friends and we've talked about it a lot. Um, and it captures that visceral quality of like food as the mechanism and food as the vehicle without throwing in the cooking part, you know? Mm -hmm. um, 
And, uh, and, you know, he also wrote a solo game called Verdure, which is very good, which is about cursing somebody as a witch. But what you're making is a salad. It's very, you know, like <laughs> most, most people are not that intimidated by a salad. Um, and so like, it's a very clever way of doing it, right? Because Sharong loves to cook, but he also knows that it can be intimidating. Um, I think for, for people who aren't used to moving around the kitchen. So he found some very clever ways to do it, uh, which I like. And this all ties into kind of what we keep on talking about, about lowering barriers. Yeah. Like lowering barriers to art, lowering barriers to cooking. Like I, I love how consistently we keep on hitting on all of these like um, repeating, repeating concepts. Yeah. Maybe we can grab one more question. Uh, I mean, keep talking about cooking. Yeah, I mean, you're welcome <laughs> to. This one comes from me as someone who has not been aware of this conversation for very long. But while you were talking about the definition of keepsake games, specifically when you talked about um, the character sheets in D&D and how those weren't really artifacts, but they kind of were, uh, I, I thought about The Quiet Year, and if this has been talked to the ground, I, I apologize. But that's a game that I've never played with the intention of considering the map a keepsake. I've always played it as a collaborative storytelling game. But it is intentionally creating the artifact, so I just wanted to know your thoughts. Yeah, I I cite the Quiet Year all the time as yeah. one of my like primary inspirations in thinking of games as something that produce a keepsake. Um, yeah. You know, I don't like honestly. I have no idea what Avery Alder chooses to call a Quiet Year. Um, it, it also precedes us by like four years, four yeah. or five years um, at least. But but for me, I find it, you know, one of the prototypical examples of the type of games that I think of when I think of keepsake games. Right. Because the experience that you have playing the game as both like the player digesting it, but also as your character going through it is imbued into every aspect yeah. of that thing. It doesn't matter that like only one person is going to keep that map or like it mm -hmm. might not be kept at all. Um, that object, that material thing is is like given meaning it becomes a, an enchanted object right like that fairy godmother game like the keepsakes and keepsake games do become kind of magical um and you can you know from a design perspective you can manipulate that to echo some of the emotional themes of your game right like field guide to memory is exploratory mm -hmm. open engaging warm um gideon blythe is like very intense and and kind of honestly at times maybe even unpleasant but also like very honest um like you you know you keep trying to hide from yourself but you can't i think like amending is is so tactile and like you know your example of turning it into a bandana or scarf like the journey of this friendship it keeps you warm it keeps you clothed like you keep it with you and like i think that with the quiet year, one of the reasons it's such a great go-to example is like a map is not a neutral piece of information. No. A map has an agenda and it is made by somebody or multiple people who want to say something with that map. And so in a game that also in a different way discusses themes of imperialism and white settler colonialism, like you are mapping your own demise as a community. Um, but using the tool that we associate with like a conquering party right like the person who kind of has the last word in history so i think that like that that kind of thoughtfulness and design is like so much fun to play with and so exciting um and it just it it, it just takes exploration you're making mud pies right you're making fairy houses um 
It just you just add, explore. I will add one fairly minor note. And it was not something mm. that like we absolutely sought to define with with when we, you know, made the term keepsake game. But um for me, the keep in keepsake game is <laughs> is important to the work I do. And part of it is grounded in our work, like, you know, just, you know, a general care for our environment and not creating waste um, yeah. and creating objects that you do want to keep. Um, so, so while obviously I talk about a quiet year as a prototypical um, game in that vein, uh, when designing my own games, the final artifact that are created as part of, of my keepsake games um, are always going to be something that you would want to keep. Like you're not going yeah. to throw out a journal that you just spent 60 hours on. You're probably not going to throw out like the, the embroidered scarf that you just put, you know, hours into. Yeah. Um, and so, and, the, and so in that sense, like, yeah. And the point is to like open it up again and explore. Yeah. Right. And to like mm -hmm. go over, like, I, I'm very sneaky with this at the end of Gideon Blythe, you tie the journal up and if you have wax or something, you wax it so you can't open it again. But of course, you're going to open that. it again. Yeah, of course, you're going to open it again. Of course, you are. Yeah. Like, because you want to. You want to relive those experiences, but you also want to see how you see them differently through time, right? Because when you revisit something you've made in the past, you're a different person. It's, a, it's like almost a time capsule of your own creative process as well. And whatever introspective, like, you know realizations you had like a lot of people playing keepsake games um or the games that Shing and i write tend to have like introspective moments that you know touch their real life and so looking back on that from a different point in time i think is a wonderful like valuable thing to do for yourself as well um and keeping it is kind of essential to that <laughs> it's true yeah absolutely <laughs> Got, i've got a pile of notes that i would love to talk about but i can see that we are actually out of time we are. Uh, so, so instead of going off on philosophical tangents, I will go ahead and <laughs> say that we should wrap up uh, and we'll go through our names one last time and then we'll wish you adieu. Uh, and you can you can reach, I think, any of us through email or, or through the magic of Metatopia. Uh, my name is Dr. Jason Cox. I am an assistant professor of art education at the University of Toledo. Let's pass it to either of you. <laughs> Go for it, Shing. Oh, uh, I'm Shingian Kaur. I'm an experienced designer, and you can find me on Twitter at Sadaspare or at shingkor.com. Uh, I'm Jian Shim. I am an outdoor educator turn game designer, and you can find me on Twitter where I'm very active under Jian Shim. My Patreon is also Jian Shim, and my itch.io store is also Jian Shim. Uh, <laughs> excellent SEO on Jian Shim. So that's where yeah, you can we're, find Yeah, we're all very Googleable. So you can also just Google us. It's true. We it's have true. very unique names. Yes. <laughs> We're good. All right.